0: Welcome, everybody. Can you hear me? Okay. Uh, I've got the privilege today to give Mike a rest, and uh, it's, it's been a while. Uh, I want to encourage you to return Mike's message next week on relationships between husband and wives. It's going to be really important to encourage you to be there for that. Uh, back in May, uh, when I last taught, uh, it was on the issue of adversity, and uh, at a time when we were going through some adversity with Jonathan and and his uh, his health, um, and I'm going to teach on that again today and uh, a continuation. I remembered that last fall I I taught on uh, giving thanks uh, in everything, you know, which includes adversity, uh, and. Uh, I want to reassure you that it's not my goal to have you, uh, you know, uh, put a smiley face sticker on your troubles, uh, or either to grab you by the shirt and slap you across the face and said, you know, buck up, you know, look happy when you're when you're miserable. You know, that's not it at all. Uh, now, Stan might say that I've got a. A strange sense of humor, and that may be true, but uh, uh, really, I think what we're trying to accomplish today is just the simple recognition that bad things happen to good people all the time, and God allows it to happen. Whether it's plagues or wars or nine eleven, it's painfully obvious that God allowed. All those things to happen. Our omniscient, sovereign Lord. Let those things and many things happen to you and I that we don't like. And we got some options here. We got some choices. Like the congregation in the borough to the west of us, we could decide that it's all God's judgment. All of it. Or... We could take the approach of the rabbi who wrote the book, you know, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People, and say, well, God's not really in control at all. He lost control sometime in the past. Or we could decide like some supposed believers who fell away from the faith that because of this, these terrible things that happen, you know, God really doesn't exist. I choose instead to believe that God allows adversity for his bigger purposes and the question becomes are we going to try to figure out what those purposes are are we going to try to learn from adversity whatever it is he wants us to learn and take advantage of those things so uh, if, you, if you've got a bulletin uh, we actually ran short today but um, uh, we printed out the main points because there's a bucket load of them and we're going to have to to go as fast as we can here. Um, And so I know there's not much room. If you can maybe write down some verses and and do some study on your own, I think that would be outstanding. Uh, So let's get started. The first point is that adversity is God's way of purifying our faith. The author of Hebrews makes it very clear that without faith, we simply cannot please God. But having some faith may not be enough. God may want to actually try our faith through adversity, the fires of adversity. In 1 Peter 1, he says this, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the trying or the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Now here Peter analogizes faith with gold. Uh, Gold becomes valuable only through the purification or the purging of impurities by fire. Our faith is not only purified, but made firm and multiplied through the fires of troubles and afflictions. Now, the difference is that gold must in the end perish and can only be used to purchase perishable things. On the other hand... The trial of our faith, as according to James, produces patience or endurance. And we are to let endurance have its perfect work so that we may be perfect and entire, lacking nothing. Now, I think it was Oswald Chambers who said, We should not pray so much for the removal of affliction as for wisdom to make right use of it. And that's a very mature approach. And i got to admit, when I was praying for Jonathan's healing, I was certainly praying for the removal of that affliction. But at the same time, Christy and I prayed, Lord, would you please get through my thick skull, whatever it is you want to teach me. Please purify me of whatever impurity there may be. And Lord, please do it quickly second point God uses adversity to increase our hatred for sin now all Topekans know that hate is not a family value okay at least that's what the bumper stickers say Uh, and in general we would agree hatred and bitterness and anger rarely get us anywhere but down But it's hard to get it completely right on the back of a car. Hate is, frankly, specifically commanded of us when it comes to evil. Psalm 97.10 says, "'Hate evil, you who love the Lord, who preserves the souls of His godly ones. He delivers them from their hand of the wicked.'" Proverbs 8.13, "'The fear of the Lord is to hate evil.'" pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth i hate amos 5:15 hate evil love good and establish justice in the gate as we experience adversity you know it may simply be the everyday garden variety result of our sin the adversity is the consequence which serves as a warning to ourselves and others that God will not be mocked. Galatians 6, starting verse 7, says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Our hatred for evil should increase as we understand first how sin has robbed us of our potential for achieving and enjoying what God has planned for us. And secondly, how our sins have damaged the lives of our loved ones. A benefit of this kind of adversity is that it teaches us humility. When we sin and hurt others, a right response is repentance. Psalm fifty-one, seventeen says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O oh Lord, you will not despise. When we are repentant, we will seek out the one or the ones we have offended and do what we can to make things right by asking for forgiveness, by making any restitution if possible. We're reminded in Matthew 5 where it says that if you present your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has anything against you, you should leave there your gift before the altar, go your way and first be reconciled and then come back to offer your gift. Now, Anyone who has ever offended, uh, repented, and confessed knows the stark emotional contrast between the slavery of guilt on the one hand and the freedom of being forgiven on the others. Now, I know this is not a Baptist church, but may I hear from those that have experienced what I just said, at least a restrained amen? Anybody? Okay, maybe a few of us have offended and been forgiven, and uh, it is something that I highly encourage. Adversity—the third point—is reminds us to pray for our authorities. First Timothy two one says: First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving, be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, listen to this, so that they may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Excuse me. So that we may lead a quiet and tranquil life. So by negative implication there, when we experience adversity, it may be the result of troubles and temptations or Satan's influence over our authorities. And this should prompt us to pray for them consistently. Um, James 3, 1 says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Spiritual leaders are to spiritually protect those under their care. And that's why they're judged by a higher standard. Therefore, when we experience temptations... It may be because our spiritual authorities are also undergoing temptation or are in need of our intercessory prayer. And even if this isn't the case, all of our authorities need prayer. Let me repeat, all of our authorities need prayer, frankly, more than any other time in my life. Next point is adversity is a sign to reevaluate our priorities. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about this at the Men's Advance in October, but let me just say that you know how we use our time is a clear sign of our priorities. And frankly, to me, it's convicting. Wrong priorities can result in adversity, not only for myself but those around me when we allow our time of study and memorizing and meditating on God's word and prayer to be crowded out by other good activities, we lose the ability to provide spiritual encouragement and direction to those whom God brings into our lives. Instead, we become subject to temptation, sometimes ironically as a result result of those same activities. Proverbs 107 gives some direction. Verse 17, Fools, or those with wrong priorities, because of their rebellious way and because of their iniquities, were afflicted. In verse 19, Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and He saved them out of their distresses. He sent His word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. The next point, Adversity Sifts our friendships. Um, friends are people who we perceive as caring about us. Would that generally be true? Uh, we do this by the attention they pay to us, and you know, their friendliness in general. Uh, but our perceptions may not always be accurate. Adversity reveals true friends and false friends. But the problem with friends is that we don't always know their motives, and especially those of unproven friends. The prodigal son asked for his inheritance and left home. He then acquired many friends. However, as David Clayton Thomas sang with blood, sweat, and tears, in antiquity. And when you got money, you got lots of friends crowding round your door. When the money's gone and all the spending ends, they won't be round anymore. <laughs> now if you remembered that, you're in your fifties. <laughs> Can you believe it that was forty years ago? Now you could take that same ditty and substitute for the word money, uh, physical attractiveness, fame, athletic ability, political power, or anything else that the world worships, and it would still remain true. In contrast, Scripture tells us that a true friend loves at all times, and a brother is born For adversity, Jesus describes the qualities of a friend with an interesting story about, which you've all heard, about the Good Samaritan, who was actually a stranger who turned out to be a true friend, Uh, to his neighbor who had fallen among thieves and was beaten and robbed. The Samaritan's commitment to the neighbor continued until all his neighbor's needs. Were met. And the Old Testament records the friendship between Jonathan and David, who were really more like brothers. Jonathan had every reason to reject David. Uh, Jonathan's father Saul resented David and even tried to kill him. And Jonathan was in line to be the king. Instead, Jonathan chose to stand by David to the end of his life. He warned and protected David, even risked his life for him, and humbly stepped aside to recognize David as the man who would be king in his place. And upon hearing of Jonathan's death, David lamented, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more powerful than the love of women. Jonathan and David had the quintessence of friendship. And their adversity proved it. Adversity, next point, draws us to God's accountability. In Second Chronicles 16.9, it says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Herein you have done foolishly, therefore from henceforth you shall have wars. Proverbs 15.3, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. The key to life, peace, wisdom, and success is a moment-by-moment awareness of our accountability for, for all of our words, thoughts, actions, attitudes, and motives. This awareness is referred to in Scripture as the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 9.10 tells us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Proverbs 14.27, the fear of the Lord is the fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. Now, As our lives become more routine without significant problems, we tend, frankly, to lose that fear, that awareness and accountability, and we start to think and act as if God really doesn't matter that much. This is what happened on a larger scale to the nation of Israel after Joshua died, and the succeeding generation forgot about God. In Judges 2, starting at verse 20, says, So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not listened to my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, in order to test Israel by them, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did or not. So the Lord allowed those nations to remain not driving them out quickly and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. So really adversity jolts and pushes us back to a right position with God. In Proverbs 16 6 it says, only by the fear of the Lord do men depart from evil. The next point is Adversity trains us to persevere. Uh, we have a practice of trying to have family devotions every day. And, and one day, of course, which is not terribly uncommon, I was not prepared, so I did the old standby. We went to the proverb for the day. It happened to be the 24th. Um, and I came across a verse that I'd probably read a hundred times before, but the significance of it never had hit me until then. It's Proverbs twenty four sixteen. It says, For a righteous man falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in time of calamity. Think about that. In football, we had a drill called the bull in the ring. Okay, And maybe a dozen guys would form a circle And everybody would take their turn in the middle of the circle. And when the coach called your number on the perimeter, uh, it was your job to run full speed and try to knock the bull in the ring down or, if not, out of the ring. And as soon as you were knocked down, somebody else's number was called over and over and over again until the exhaustion of the bull. Anybody have that experience? Mike did, maybe some others. Um, The goal of the drill was to teach each bull to recover immediately from a blow, get up, and pursue the play and prepare for the next inevitable hit. Why? Because, frankly, in football, you're no good laying on the ground. Why are you feeling sorry for yourself? Now, this was not a drill that our moms were allowed to witness. <laughs> but just as certainly, it was probably one of the greatest lessons I ever learned in life. It was also a lesson that the nation of of Britain learned in World War II. On October the 29th, 1941, five weeks before Pearl Harbor, Great Britain, uh, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, Winston Churchill, visited the Harrow School to hear the traditional songs that he had sung there as a youth, as well as speak to the students. Uh, And this became one of his most quoted speeches after recounting that Great Britain had come to the brink of extinction due to the devastating Nazi air raids on English cities, he went on to challenge the students as follows. But for everyone, surely, what we have gone through in this period for the last ten, six, excuse me, ten months, this is the lesson. Never give in. Never give in. Never, 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 in nothing great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. We stood as a nation all alone one year ago, and to many countries it seemed that our account was closed. We were finished All this tradition of ours, our songs, our school history, this part of the history of this country, were gone and finished and liquidated. Very different is the mood today. Britain, other nations thought, had drawn a sponge across her slate. But instead, our country stood in the gap. There was no flinching, no thought of giving in. And by what seemed almost a miracle to those outside these islands though we ourselves never doubted it, we now find ourselves in a position where I say we can be sure that we have only to persevere in order to conquer. Perseverance is an invaluable trait. And I have seen perseverance among many of the saints. Great examples like uh, Marvin de Groff who much of his youth was, was very, very sick, and is sick again today. Uh, Brad Runyon, Evelyn Lehman, who persevered in times of affliction. One of the greatest examples in my life of perseverance is Tom Singleton, Dana's husband. Heavily involved in his family, and serving in the homeschool community, and just generally a great guy. He always had a cheerful spirit. Then he was diagnosed with cancer. Despite the obvious effects of his affliction, Tom never skipped a beat. He stayed committed to those things that were important to him, and he always had a joy in him. It was always a joy to be around him as long as he could draw a breath. He simply persevered. If we can learn the lesson of Proverbs 24, when our house burns down, when there's a miscarriage, when the diagnosis is cancer, when our unmarried daughter tells us she's expecting... When your business fails, when our child suffers excruciating pain, or when temptation knocks us down, we will get back up and confront the next challenge that God allows in our life. When these things have happened to people within this body, they have been tempered in perseverance by God's school of hard knocks. Next point adversity prepares us to comfort others. With all this training in perseverance comes experience. And that experience digs a deep well of wisdom from which others may draw. In his second letter to the church at Corinth, Paul explained in chapter 1, verse 1, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which he are, we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance,' so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. For if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. I believe that many in this body have suffered greatly and therefore have a deep well of comfort to share. Our most effective counsel and comfort, frankly, grows out of the lessons that God teaches us through adversity. The last and most important point that I'd like to make about adversity is that it calls us to identify with Christ and have access to His power. Uh, We should be recognizing our helpless condition against evil so that we will identify with Christ and the power of His resurrection. Paul suffered great loss for this very purpose. In Philippians 3, starting at uh, verse 8, it says, "...I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish." so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, in order that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection From the dead. Now, Paul expands on this in Ephesians 1 in verse 17 when he explains that this power is available to every believer through the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. This knowledge and power doesn't seem realistic because it doesn't seem to match our experience. Why? Well, frankly, because we all tend to live pretty spiritually impotent lives. However, if we accept by faith and begin to live in the truth of that knowledge, Paul indicates that our spiritual eyes are enlightened so that we will Quote, know what is the hope of His calling, which are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ, when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places. I would highly recommend... Um, that you study and meditate on Romans 6, 7, and 8, where Paul really lays this out. I'll summarize. In in Romans 6, Paul teaches us the good news of how to know that we're crucified with Christ, how to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God, and how to yield ourselves to God and our members as instruments of righteousness to Him. In Romans 7, Paul gives us the bad news that after salvation, believe it or not, Christians still sin. However, our death in Christ also caused us to die to the law so that we are now free to be controlled by God's Spirit in order to bring forth spiritual fruit. Finally, in Romans 8, Paul gives us the source of power over sin, the indwelling Spirit of Christ, which has set you free from the law of sin and death. You and I cannot possibly fulfill the requirements of the law because it's perfection. But that's okay. Because God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, And as an offering for sin, He paid the price for our sins. And in so doing, He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. If we will only not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In in other words, believers, even though they're saved, must choose To walk in the Spirit. Yeah, but how? What does that mean? Well, that's probably a whole series in itself. Uh, But think about it. Can it be impossible? Would God make it impossible? What comes to mind? Well, for starters, how about read your Bible? Okay? Read it for meaning. Don't just mechanically go through and read words. Um, Spend significant time in prayer, listening to God, what He's got to say to you. Fellowship with committed believers. Be involved with the activity of having your rough edges knocked off and knocking off the others. Of, of your of your fellow saints. Finally, uh, always approach each adversity with some questions. Like, what would God's best be in this situation? What does he want me to learn through this adversity? What are his bigger purposes? More important than my suffering. In Romans 6, verse 5, it says, If we have become united or identified with Christ, with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Okay? Tonight, um, out at the... Lake, we're going to hold a baptism. And uh, at this late hour, we've got a special on baptism. They're free tonight. Why? Because, well, the price has already been paid. And if you haven't been baptized, it's really just a matter of whether you choose to obey in order to identify with the one who is at the same time the creator of the universe but also the one who loves you and me so much that he became a sacrificial lamb so that we, sinful us, even me, could spend eternity with him. Let's pray. Father... um, we certainly don't know and understand all of your purposes. We don't understand when they come, when, when, uh, when adversity comes, when we're sick, or a loved one is ailing, or bad things happen, or even national tragedies. We pray, Lord, that we would get whatever message you want us to, that we would learn from our, our experiences. And that we would use that to grow and mature, to comfort others. And then to identify with you. Lord, we give praise and honor to you now. And ask that you would be with this body, with lion and lamb. And that you would enable us to use every opportunity for your honor and glory. Thank you, Father, for the assembly of the saints today. We give you all the praise and the glory. And, Lord, we do want to give thanks in everything. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.